Hey, it's Zach here. And as you probably know, our trip to Italy is coming up and we're learning so much preparing with the help of OneDream. OneDream is the educational platform with thousands of hours of trustworthy content on courses covering just about every topic. And OneDream is giving Jesuitical listeners an amazing offer, a free month of unlimited access. Sign up now at OneDream.com slash Jesuitical. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And Zach Davis has not packed yet. <laughs> no, me <either>. <laughs> So <laughs> we're hoping that we're, we're going to speed through this because I, I, we're mm-hmm. leaving for Italy like in a few days. And I need, yeah, I need to start packing. I don't know. About yeah, you. but before we go, we're having one last glass of wine here. <laughs> yes, before we have lots of wine in Italy. Yeah, we got to practice. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is a pretty epic glass of wine. This was requested by our special guest this week. We're having a great... Italian red, a Brunello di Montalcino, which can get super pricey. We found uh, the, uh, the most reasonably priced one we could, but oh my goodness, this changed my life uh, the moment I <laughs> sipped this. And this amazing wine comes recommended from our amazing guest this week, Professor Ken Bartlett. Uh, Professor Bartlett comes from Smithsonian's The Guide to Essential Italy, which you might have guessed is a course you can watch on Wondrium. Yeah, I was fascinated by this course and I was really excited to talk to Professor Bartlett because Rome is like this place that looms very large in Catholic minds. We are Roman Catholics, but we don't actually talk about why or how it got to be so important. And Professor Bartlett brings a historical perspective that I, I I learned a ton talking to him and watching this course. And that's just one of many courses you can find on Wondrium. Wondrium is the educational platform with courses on just about everything from top university experts and incredible teachers. And the best part is there's no homework, no grades. It's just learning for the pure enjoyment of learning. Yeah. And in addition to Professor Bartlett's course, we were also checking out one of Wondrium's brand new programs called Traveling the Roman Empire uh, to get ready for our trip to Italy. It's hosted by archaeologist Darius Aria, who's such a great guide. It's so interesting to hear like just how vast the Roman Empire was and how they managed to like administer and organize. I, I learned a ton, like even beyond Europe, the, the stretches of the Roman Empire went. Yeah, so we love how Wondrium is helping us prepare for our trip to Italy. And even if you can't join us in Rome, you can still experience a bit of Italy with Wondrium. And right now, Wondrium is offering our listeners a free month of unlimited access. To get this offer, you need to visit our special URL, wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Don't wait. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of the show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week, Pope Francis made a three-day trip to Kazakhstan, maybe a country not a lot of Catholics are familiar with, but it's in Central Asia. And it is hosting the 7th Congress of the Leaders of World and Traditional Religions, which is an interfaith gathering of imams, rabbis, and Christian ministers. Yeah, and he's also taking this trip as an opportunity to meet with the country's teeny tiny Catholic minority. It's about 0.01% of the majority Muslim population. And much of the talk before this trip was about a potential meeting between Francis and Patriarch Kirill, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, who's been supportive of uh, the war, Russia's war in Ukraine. But a few weeks ago, the Patriarch canceled his trip to Kazakhstan. So that isn't going to happen. Yeah. So the talk went from 
a potential meeting to speculation about why did the patriarch cancel. We have some clues. So, it, you know, this would have been the first meeting of the Pope and patriarch since Russia's invasion of Ukraine seven months ago um, and only their second meeting ever. And obviously, Pope Francis has condemned the war in Ukraine. He's been circumspect about you know, naming Russia and Putin specifically. But he has he has um, he at one point said that the patriarch cannot turn himself into Putin's altar boy. And that that came before a scheduled meeting of, that they were supposed to have in Jerusalem that the Vatican then postponed. So there, there's some observers thinking that, you know, the patriarch canceled the trip to Kazakhstan um, kind of in retaliation for for that. Kerfuffle. Yeah. And in Kazakhstan, the Pope again begged for an end to Russia's, quote, senseless and tragic war in Ukraine and called on religious leaders to reject self-righteousness, fundamentalism and terrorism and to be promoters of unity. What's our next story, Zach? Just to note that this next story contains talk of mental health and suicide. And if you're having thoughts of that, call or text 988, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which has free and confidential support for people in distress, prevention and crisis resources for you or your loved ones. So the new bishop of Phoenix, John P. Dolan, announced that the diocese would be starting a new office of Catholic mental health ministry, uh, which is not something I've heard of happening in a Catholic diocese before. So it seems like it's a pretty big deal. So this came after the diocese held a massive remembrance earlier this month for those who had died by suicide, where Bishop Dolan shared that he had lost two siblings of his own to suicide. Yeah, that's kind of a remarkable thing to hear from a bishop. I, I was very moved to hear hear someone in leadership in the church talk so openly about this. Um, and, and he also asked people to submit names to be read aloud during the mass. Um, and he said he was expecting 100 or so and, and was stunned to see that over 1,000 people had submitted their loved ones' names uh, in just a few days. Yeah. And so this new office is going to serve three purposes. Uh, one, education. Two, accompaniment for those suffering. And three, advocacy for better policy and funding from government and other sources. Uh, notably, what the office is not trying to do. It's not trying to diagnose, not trying to treat, right? There are other professionals that do that type of thing. The The church's really role here is to, uh, Bishop said, is to accompany people that are going through these things. And this is a re- re- not a recent reversal, but a part of the church's evolution, um, how it understands suicide for a long time. The, the church understood it as a mortal sin. Um, and that began began to change in the 60s and 70s when the church and society as a whole began to see suicide, not not as a, a selfish act, um, but really an act of desperation and something, you know, surrendering to a disease that really made life unbearable. Yeah. And I know this is something that you've reported on sort of church, the church trying to respond to, to this like epidemic that's in our country. Yeah. So back in uh, 2017, I actually went to the Archdiocese of Chicago where they they were having a mass of remembrance. And at the time, I, it really was the only diocese that I could find in the country that was doing this kind of thing. And and I have to say that that service was just one of the most heartbreaking and moving things I've I've been to. And, and it meant so much to um, the families that that attended. Um, and, you know, kind of my hope in, in writing that that article for America about the ministry in Chicago uh, was that you know, this sort of thing would spread throughout the country. So I'm, I'm really heartened to see see this from the Diocese of Phoenix. Yeah, it's a great ministry led by Bishop Dolan. And again, just want to say that if you're having thoughts of suicide, call or text 988, which is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline for free and confidential support. And now stick around for our conversation with Professor Ken Bartlett.
Joining us from Toronto is Professor Kenneth Bartlett. Professor Bartlett is a Renaissance historian, author, and professor at the University of Toronto. Welcome to Jesuitical, Professor. My great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No, thanks for being here. We've been watching you on uh, Smithsonian Journeys, The Guide to Essential Italy, which is uh, from the great courses on Wondrium, uh, and really excited for a number of reasons today. But first, because you suggested a wine for us to share uh, while we have this conversation. Um, <laughs> and so I picked up a, a Brunello uh, today at your suggestion. So very I, much appreciated. I, and has it changed your life as I suggested that it would? Oh, my goodness. It's so good. It's so yummy. It's one of the great wines of uh, of Southern Tuscany, and it's made from a single grape. It's not a blend. So another reason, I hope you're going to Montalcino for lots of reasons, but uh, the main reason is to drink Brunello, especially considerable amounts. Oh, that's the plan, I think. So Don't drive the bus. <laughs> that would be bad for a number of reasons. Um, maybe a good place to start uh, after the wine is, I'm curious about what first attracted you to Italy. It's an, actually it's a somewhat unusual story. When I began my PhD, I was originally working on a thesis on English humanism. And the people that I was studying not only bored me, in some instances, because of their hot gospeling, they, uh, they annoyed me. So I realized the one thing about all of them that interested me is that they went to Italy or they read Italian books. And my thesis supervisor suggested that I follow this obsession by applying for a Mellon Fellowship to study in Italy, which I did and which I won. And so I went to Florence. And um, from that moment, from the moment I stepped off the plane in Rome, I felt like I was coming home, that there was a perfect consummation of imagination and personality uh, that has led to the person I am today. So it really is a kind of uh, emotional conversion. Can you try to distill down what it was specifically about Italy, the country, the people, the culture that that led to that conversion for people well, who haven't been there? I had, I had always been arty. Um, I'd always been attracted to art and culture. I studied piano for 10 or 12 years um, because I was in the university stream in high school, I had five years of Latin. And uh, when you read enough Virgil, but particularly Ovid and Catullus, you realize that there is an extraordinary culture there. But it was all very secondhand. I've seen pictures, obviously, and I had picture books and I had books to read. But the reality was that when I was actually there, I felt it all come together, that the Everything from the climate to the remarkable physical beauty of the landscape to the historical memories in surviving buildings, uh, walking on the Via Appia, walking into the uh, uh, to the Pantheon, and knowing that these buildings and these structures had been there for uh, two thousand years, the way I felt was that this wasn't something to understand at a distance um, passively. This was something that reminded me that I was part of a continuum. And seeing the world through the eyes of the people that I had read and thinking of the events that had taken place in the confines of the space in which I was standing, all of this had an enormous emotional effect, which hasn't gone. It hasn't left me at all. And I hope that was transmitted to some extent on, in the Smithsonian Essential Italy, because uh, the enthusiasm was certainly there. I take medication for it, but it doesn't <laughs> Italy is also a place very near and dear to my heart, in particular Rome. I studied abroad there in college. It's where my wife and I got engaged. I, lo I love spending time there, but it's been an important place for 
for Christians in particular for for a long time. So I'm wondering if you could maybe situate us, you know, going way back and why why did early Christian communities sort of migrate from what's today Israel Palestine to to Italy and Rome? Well, that's actually a really complicated question. Many of them didn't migrate. Many of them were taken as slaves after uh, the conquest of um, of uh, Jerusalem by by Titus. The um, male population was enslaved. Uh, the city was sacked, and the treasures of the uh, temple were brought to Rome. And those slaves are the ones who built the Colosseum, and the treasure that was stolen is what paid for it. The other thing to remember is that Christianity uh, began as a heretical sect of Judaism, and there were large numbers of Jews in Rome. In fact, the area that's still identified as the ghetto is largely where they lived since, since classical times. So that was there was another point of, uh, of contact. But then there is either the mythology or the tradition that there are some direct connections between the foundation of the, uh, of the Roman church and the city of Rome itself. And th- this, of course, is uh, Christ's charge to Peter that um, Peter, as first bishop of Rome, was given the responsibility by Christ. You know. Wait, so, so can I can I interrupt there? So one, you mentioned like this idea of mythology and tradition. So I do want to unpack that at some point. But when Jesus was saying like, Peter, you know, you're the rock on which you're gonna, I'm going to build my church. I mean, Jesus wasn't thinking about Rome at that point. Was he or was he? Or how, how do those things connect? By tradition, Peter went to Rome and Peter then helped establish the church. There would have been Jews there who probably, because of their cosmopolitan um, uh, uh, world, probably have heard about this heretical rabbi that was so, causing so much, uh, causing so much trouble. The Roman authorities certainly were, because Josephus tells us uh, that this rabble rouser um, is uh, causing difficulty in the in the province of uh, of Palestine. Um, so. If Peter did go to Rome as part of his um, part of his charge, he went there because it was the center of the world. The center of the Western world was the capital of the great Roman Empire. It had uh, reached almost its largest extension. It was the organizational structure that really put Europe and what is now the Middle East together into a single unity. And so to create a church in Rome would be, in fact, creating a church in the center of of the known world and of the power center. So the mythology, legend, tradition continues that, of course, Peter, uh, not wanting to be um, uh, killed by Nero, who was nobody's idea of a good date, um, (laughs) left the city and he started walking down the Via Appia. And, of course, then uh, he met Christ. Uh, around which, when you if you go to the catacombs of uh, of San Sebastiano, you'll probably visit the Church of Covadas, um, which is built around the, the marks in the uh, pavement where Peter saw Christ. And Christ said, uh, "Peter, where are you going?" And he said, "Well, I'm leaving town. It's only it's only safe." And I said, "Where are you going, Domine Covadas, uh, Lord? Where are you going?" He said, "Well, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again in your stead." And of course. Um, Peter went back. He was uh, crucified upside down at his own request in the race course of Nero and Caligula. And with that act in AD 68, to some extent, the idea of the martyrdom of the apostle Peter, together with then the martyrdom of of Paul um, just outside the city, Peter um, could be crucified because he was not a Roman citizen. Paul could not 
because he was a Roman citizen. Remember, Paul kept saying, Achivus Romanus sum, I'm a Roman citizen, so you can't do these terrible things to me. But they still cut his head off, and now the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, Forele Mura, um, is, over, is over that site. So the connection really is the two apostolic martyrs martyred almost simultaneously, uh, together with the um, bringing of the new religious dispensation to the center of the old political dispensation. And there's a lot more I could say, but um, it gets too technical and there would be footnotes. <laughs> no, I want to I pick up something here because uh, the Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica in particular claims to sort of be on the site where, where Peter is buried. And I know on our pilgrimage, we're going to actually do the Scotty yeah, tour. You're going to the Scotty, which is terrific. And just recently renovated so that the site is beautifully accessible and really well done. It's interesting. The church does not say absolutely, even though after the excavations of 1939, uh, the Pope did say, yes, these are the bones of Peter. Could you maybe just tell that whole story real quick? Okay. Um, yeah. Peter was crucified upside down. It was actually the worst um, kind of death because not only was it horribly painful and awful, it was also um, a humiliating, the ultimate humiliation, which is why there are no scenes of the crucifixion up until really the, the fifth century. You're going to see when you go to um, the Basilica of Santa Sabina on the Aventino, you're going to see the first representation of Christ um, uh, crucified with the, with the uh, thieves on either side in the door, which dates from about the year 410 or so. So Peter was crucified. Um, Roman law required that bodies, except for members of the imperial family, Vestal Virgins, famous generals, and a very few others, be burned. Christians in the Jewish tradition required inhumation burial because of the resurrection of the body. You can't resurrect something that's a pile of ashes. So inhumation burial was required of early Christians. And that meant that the followers of, um, uh, of the early Christians took the body and instantly grabbed it before it could be burned and buried it in a Roman cemetery, which was just next to the race course of, uh, of Caligula and Nero on the lower slopes of the Mons Vaticanus. And it was largely recognized by Christians. Of course, the Protestant community and many others say that there is absolutely no evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. And this is true. There's no smoking gun. There's no document. There's no photo of him standing there on the Vittorio Emanuele bridge with his arms around two young women. Um, none of that. But what there is, is there's a tradition that begins at a time when people whose great-grandparents, maybe even if they lived a long time, grandparents could actually have been part of the event. So even though I myself am, am a humane skeptic, um, I think that speaking as a professional historian, there is enough circumstantial evidence to indicate that it is there's a very good likelihood that Peter indeed went to Rome. And secondly, if he had been in Rome in AD 68, Nero would have torched him. Um, and that is because Nero needed a scapegoat for the Great Fire of AD 64. And so the prescriptions from 64 to 68 were really, really terrible. But I have to add, and this is something that most people don't know, he wasn't torched because he was a Christian. He was torched the way all Christians were or any other who refused to recognize the divinity of the emperor, which was the glue that held the empire together. Why would you accept a coin with a picture on it of an emperor if you didn't believe the emperor was sort of semi-divine? But Christians refused that. 
They refused to recognize the divinity of the emperor, and they refused to make sacrifices to the gods that every single Roman of every class believed was necessary for the protection of the city and the empire. So they were traitors. They were treated as traitors, not as religious um, uh, uh, fanatics. Um, the reality was Romans didn't care what you believed. They were remarkably latitudinarian. I mean, sort of like the United Church in Canada. I mean, it didn't really matter. There's, you don't need a theology. You just need the Barney the dinosaur. I love you. You love me. The, the Roman state didn't see them as you know killing Christian fanatics. But what was the Christian self-conception? Did they see themselves as martyrs as, at that point? Or is that something we kind of read back onto it? I think they did. And they did in part. Because many early Christians, and you know this better than I, um, actually embraced, sought out death. I mean, Jesuits in, in Canada did the same thing in the 17th century. They sought it out because it was a sure route to heaven. And they believed that if they suffered and were martyred for the faith, then they would be on the uh, express elevator. Um, and it was, it was a sure thing. And it moved beyond that, that martyrs themselves and their body parts became sacred because you're sure that these people are in heaven. And so consequently, they have got the ability to intercede for you with Christ, Mary, at least after the Council of Ephesus, uh, and uh, maybe even God. So it was the, the blood of martyrs. So Rome becomes a place that is saturated with the blood of martyrs. And this is celebrated in so many ways and partly explains why Nicholas V moved the headquarters of the church from St. John Lateran, where it had been from the time of Constantine, to the um, Apostolic Vatican Palace, because it was associated with the um, major martyr of St. Peter. And today we talk about the Vatican, whereas in many ways we should talk about the Lateran slash Vatican. But nobody does that. It would be too complicated. And I don't want to have to explain it to them the way I have to explain it to my students, that the <laughs> Basilica of St. Peter is not a cathedral. And uh, you better learn that. And if you call it a cathedral, you've instantly lost 10 points and you're doomed to bottomless perdition. Wow. That's good to yeah. know. Um, now, I but it's not a cathedral, but I do still remember the first time, um, what's the road, Via della... Conciliazione, the one where you turn. The Via della Conciliazione, the one built yeah. by Mussolini. Yeah. Yes. Um, kind of a terrible, terrible guy, obviously. But this road, at and least it, provided for me. a terrible road. <laughs> yes. But for me, you know, kind of turning down that road and you get that first breathtaking sight of St. Peter's is like something that's ingrained in my mind forever. I'm curious. You've taken a lot of people to the Vatican. Mm -hmm. um, young people, old people, Catholics, non-Catholics. What generally is... If you could isolate maybe like uh, a college student of yours who's maybe raised Catholic, may or may not practice today. What's their general reaction to being in the Vatican? Everybody is sort of blown away. And once you go in, uh, you are simply overwhelmed first by its size. It is the largest church in the world and one of the largest buildings ever constructed in the um, 16th and 17th centuries. I mean, it took 120 years from the time the foundations were laid until it was consecrated in 1626. But then when you go in, you are overwhelmed by the decoration, the use of marble, the fact that there's no paint anywhere in the church, nowhere. Everything you see is micro-mosaic, which is pretty remarkable in, it, in, it, in itself. Um, and you realize that this is a, is a remarkable space, and you interpret it according to your own, uh, your own culture. 
You interpret it as one of the great buildings. I mean, designed. I mean, everybody had a finger in it. Michelangelo's dome, Bramante, the basic architect, the San Gallo, who were going to turn it into what looked like a mall in the suburbs. Um, but you've got almost everything there, and you can interpret it as you like. If you're interested in art, you've got um, Michelangelo's uh, a Pietà. Um, on one side, you've got Bernini's tombs, especially the tomb of Alexander VII, which was just so incredible. You've got all of this stuff, and you've got Bernini's Baldacchino over the papal altar, and you've got the papal throne. Um, this is incredible stuff. Even if you are actively opposed to religion, you realize that this is a magical, special place. And it's why I tell my students, all art is propaganda, and all art should stir you emotionally in order to feel a certain thing. And a good artist can direct how you're feeling and the direction in which your um, uh, uh, your thoughts should move. And the, this sense of space and time, together with the sense of beauty and architectural wonder and design and the sense of history, all together moves almost everybody. I've, I've met people who don't like it, who think it's over the top, but... Oh, those people probably aren't very much fun at parties. Uh, no, absolutely not. No, no, no. Don't introduce them to your sister, whatever God. you do. That yeah. would be just awful. Well, um, I mean, Pope Francis, he's the one who moved out of the Apostolic Palace to Casa Santa Marta. So he thought it yes. was a little over the top. Yeah, I know. But you see, in some ways, again, if, if uh, Francis had asked me, I would have said that's a mistake. I understand the desire to be simple like Francis and all of that stuff. But he, to some extent, is breaking that sense of continuity. Bones of Peter underneath the altar of, uh, of St. Peter, the Bernini's Baldacchino over an altar where only the Pope can say, um, uh, can say Mass, the uh, four relics of, uh, of, of St. Andrews and Veronica, um, the, the true cross represented by St. Helena, and Longinus' spear. All of this is sort of the story of the, found, the founding of the church and the traditions, the mythology, the theology of the church. It does uh, get to the heart of one of these tensions because I used to, I still make this joke that, you know, when you first see St. Peter's, my, my initial thought is, you know, selling indulgences got a really bad rap, but uh, if it pay for this, I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, I, I certainly felt this, a little bit of discomfort in, you're, you're overwhelmed by beauty, sure. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a certain amount of not just wealth, but the more you learn about some of these Renaissance popes in particular, that can make you feel a little uneasy or it kind of pops this naivete that you might have if you're a young idealistic Catholic about um, the Vatican and Rome and all these things. Um, I'm curious if you've had other people express some of this sure, or, or share sure. some of these things. Well, first of all, let me just abuse you of the relationship between spirituality and beauty. Beauty is spiritual by definition. More people are moved by art and music and other forms of beauty than almost anything else. And there's no reason why you shouldn't sublimate those religious feelings, which are very, very difficult to define because theology is never easy for anybody. Um, why you shouldn't sublimate those into a vocabulary that everybody can appreciate um, emotionally. So okay. that's one thing. The other point I'd make about uh, that, and I do it very often with the hot gospelers who are occasionally with me, but not very often. My, my late mother-in-law was probably <laughs> the best example. Why isn't all of this just given to the poor? Well, you know, you'd make a lot of poor people comfortable, overfed for maybe one generation, but then it's gone. The thing about the building, the art, the culture, the beauty is it is still there. 
It still moves you emotionally. It still gives you a sense of the divine. As um, uh, I tell my students, occasionally you got to F the ineffable. You've got to just use this space in order to understand how the spirit and the mind can be moved in ways that aren't fully cognitive, that aren't intellectual, uh, but function on a different level. What, what's your favorite spot in the Vatican, the place you can go back to again and again and get that feeling? Probably the Stanze of Raphael, mm. and particularly the, the, uh, uh, the Stanze della Signatura, the dialogue between the uh, Disputation of the Holy Sacrament and the School of Athens, that is between revealed truth and, and human truth as, as uh, uh, defined by reason. And the, the, the brilliant painting, I mean, Raphael was an amazing guy. And the brilliance of that and the beauty of the painting and the use of perspective and the creation of an illusion of a perfect world that goes beyond what the eye sees, um, it's, really, it's really kind of amazing. Everyone expects me to say this, the vault of the Sistine, which is really incredible and marvelous. But in many ways, it's a graphic novel. But Raphael is better um, because Raphael appeals to all of the senses, including the intellectual ones. It's not just a graphic novel. You have to get into the mind of the people who are represented on that wall in order to understand this dialogue between the two pictures opposite, the two frescoes opposite one another. You can't look at them one at a time because they function together. They function as a unity. Now, uh, on the topic of art and history and spirituality. Uh, my aesthetics professor while I was studying abroad in Rome used to say that um, he was a Roman and he would tell me that Rome was a pretty lousy ancient Roman city. If you were, if that was kind of your thing that um, the Catholics basically had sort of put all their stuff on top of that. Uh, I'm curious what's your take on that. Uh, is that just like typical Roman cynicism or is there some truth to that? It's complicated. Um, I actually teach a course on the city of Rome and I tell my students, if you want to understand the city, you have to think of it as a palimpsest, you know, a manuscript in which one uh, script has been scraped away so that the, the vellum can be used again. It's um, layer upon layer, yeah. and it is recycling of space in a profound way. So if you think of the Pantheon, which is in some ways the classic example, pagan temple dedicated to all the planetary gods, first built by Marcus Agrippa and rebuilt by Hadrian. Then it became a, a Christian church in the, um, in the 6th century. Then it became a historical monument after Rome was conquered by the armies of the Kingdom of Italy and the anti-clericalism of the Italian state. And it became a monument to the Italian state with King Victor Emmanuel buried there and um, uh, then his son Umberto after he was assassinated and a monument to the cultural superiority of the cultural genius of Italy, because Raphael's buried there. And other painters are, are uh, buried there close to, uh, close to Raphael. So what is it? Is it an ancient monument? Is it a church? Is it a historic monument? Is it a royal uh, cemetery? Is it a homage to the great painters of the Renaissance and Baroque? What is it? Well, it's all those things. And this is something, again, I have to talk to my students about, because those who you know, came through Catholic schools who um, memorized the catechism and has probably got um, prayers tattooed on their backs. Uh, when they learn about uh, particular popes like Alexander VI Borgia uh, uh, or Julius III, um, they say, this is terrible. Popes aren't supposed to have children and mistresses and they're not supposed to murder people. Um, I say, no, wait a minute. 
you have to remember the, the concept of the, the double lessons. On the one hand, the Pope is a successor to Peter and Christ's vicar on earth. The other is a man. And the very fact that the church can sustain uh, as a spiritual institution the sins of men, to some extent, justifies its very existence and becomes an element of living theology. And there is something about traveling that, I, I don't know, brings a lot of the, like, shakes up enough of what's already been put there by other people that you're you're able to kind of forge some of these mm-hmm. new connections, I think. Um, I want to I ask you about something you bring up a lot in the Wondrian Smithsonian course, which is that in Rome, history and legend are kind of used interchangeably. Uh, I'm curious how you approach that uh, as a historian. Does it mean that, you know, we're just supposed to, you know, laugh at and sneer at kind of all of the legends. I, I, I'm asking as a Catholic too, because this is also how much of Catholic history is done by legend. Um, what, what, what's the importance of these legends, even if they're not necessarily historically true? The idea of um, legend and truth uh, is something that's a false dichotomy. What we study is not what happened in the past, but what, what people think happened in the past, how they interpret an accidental set of survivals in terms of records or buildings or whatever, and impose some kind of rational order on it, that you don't study history, you study historians. And the difference between legend and truth is ultimately what you choose to believe. So if you look at a city like Rome, um, does it really matter where Peter was crucified? It doesn't. The important thing is that you believe that Peter was in Rome and was crucified. Where it happened simply becomes a point of academic discussion. Given your professions, more than anybody else should understand how belief and faith gives meaning to events. And so I think for your group, when they're in Rome, the instrument will suddenly make a lot of sense. And whether it's true or not is absolutely irrelevant. Because first of all, we'll never know. And secondly, what you choose to believe to be true becomes true. And that's the way we are. I think it's the way we're wired as human beings. So let's end with some advice for our group in Rome and Italy beyond. For Catholics in particular, what would be your recommendation for a place that either historically or by legend is interesting and worth seeing and maybe doesn't show up on, on your average three-day itinerary through Rome? Well, the doors of Santa Sabina. I'm always there alone. And they are wonderful because they're biblical stories as defined and amongst the very few pieces of Roman wooden art that's, that has survived. When you look at um, the rooms such as the Stanze or even the Sistine Chapel, it's too bad you're going to get there when it's crowded unless you've got a private entry, which I hope you have. Think about it as the union of human genius and spirit and the engine of spirituality. Because what makes it so great? Partly because Raphael and Michelangelo believed in what they were doing. And um, we all like to quote St. Augustine, at least, at least I do. I don't know if you do or not. Um, Credo et intelligam. I believe in order that I might understand. And the belief then functions as an engine for understanding. I wish I could be there with you and, uh, and take you by the hand. but We would love that. But you've given us a good head start on our trip to Italy. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, we do have one final question for you that we ask all of our mm-hmm. guests. And that is, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Roman or not. 
Roman or not. <laughs> well, let's go back to something I said before. Um, I think it would be Raphael. If he hadn't died, and if Maria uh, Bibiena hadn't died, to whom he was betrothed, he was going to be made a cardinal, and he might ultimately have ended up as pope. The idea of an artist pope is just such a wonderful idea, but an artist saint um, is, is marvelous. And of course, there's Beat Angelico for Angelico as somebody who is in the waiting room of canonization. But Raphael, I think, represents the best of the human condition uh, in terms of his ability to create art that is so profound that you were moved in a way that nothing else can really, really equal. Mm, I love that. I didn't. I don't think I realized that that might have been his trajectory. Yeah, he was a close friend of Pope Leo X, of course, uh, who died very soon after, uh, unfortunately. Uh, no, Raphael died at 37, and even the descriptions of, of his death uh, mirror those of Christ. Lots of people say he died at 33, as did Christ. And uh, the, the Venetian ambassador said, a great darkness descended upon the earth at the time of his death. He was carried to the Pantheon where he was buried, and the unfinished um, uh, transfiguration was put at the uh, head of his bier. In other words, he was already in the process of being turned into a spiritual figure. Terrific saint, and not a bad Ninja Turtle either, I should, I should add. Uh, <laughs> Professor Bartlett, my, my appetite is wet. I am so, I'm so excited to get over there to walk, walk the cobblestone, but also... Um, this is just a, another great plug for The Great Course, uh, which is, again, called Smithsonian's The Guide to Essential Italy, which is hosted by Professor Ken Bartlett, which you can watch on Wondrium. Uh, we should we, we want to remind our listeners to sign up today and use our special URL, which is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical, uh, where you can hear more from Professor Ken Bartlett. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. A great pleasure meeting you. I hope you've had fun. I have. And um, let's uh, find a time when we can do this again. Yeah, I'll bring the Brunello. Okay, (laughs) please do. Yeah, send it by UPS. (laughs) Arriba there. Thanks, guys. A pleasure to meet you. I'm waiting for you. No, I won't leave you. You've been down so long that I can barely breathe. In a sea of worry. Waiting for a flurry. On water reaching for the sky I thought that I could be without you I thought I'd let you go and drop you I thought that I could just pretend that I didn't miss you But now it's plain for me to... Do you suspect you need more spiritual support than your pet can offer? Tired of wondering where God might be leading you? Maybe you could use a listening ear who asks the right questions to help you discern your path. We created Spiritualize to help you connect with qualified spiritual direction support because we believe that spirit thrives on listening and connection. Join us today at spiritualize.co and select Referred by Jesuitical for 50% off your first session. Discover the sacred in the ordinary, one session at a time, at spiritualize.co. Join Jesuit Refugee Service USA as they walk with refugees in over 50 countries around the world. Learn how you can accompany, serve, and advocate today by visiting www.jrsusa.org. So back to school season always makes me a little nostalgic. You know, I I loved picking out 
what classes I was going to take, the thrill of getting new school supplies, you know, walking into the classroom for the first time. But honestly, that's why we love Wondrium so much, because it's an educational platform that has courses on just about every topic you can imagine, from top university professors and experts who are incredible teachers. Yes. And Zach, you might not know this about me, but I'm a huge fan of Jane Austen. And I read a couple of her books in high school and college, but I never became a Jane Austen completist. And so I'm doing that. And and I'm using Wondrium as a companion as I make my way through all of her novels. They have a great course. It's called The Life and Works of Jane Austen. Dive into the wit, wisdom, and world of Jane Austen. It's from a, an expert on her, her life and the history that uh, provides context for these novels that have endured through the centuries. Sounds like a a great course if you if you liked our episode with Haley Stewart mm-hmm. on Jane Austen's Guide to Life you're going to love this and you know One Dream can let us learn about anything we're curious about in addition to Jane Austen and we know that you'll love One Dream too and that's why we want you to sign up today One Dream is offering our listeners a free month of unlimited access to get this offer though you need to visit our special URL that's wondream.com slash jesuitical again that's w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m dot com slash jesuitical And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So we are leaving for Italy this weekend. Uh, and if you're not going with us, we're hoping you can still follow along. Uh, Ashley and I are going to be joined by our colleague, Kevin Jackson, who's the studio manager here at America. And he's packing a camera bag with him. So we're planning to shoot some stand-ups and some really cool spots, share some of the facts that we're learning, and just give like an insight into uh, all the cool stuff we're seeing. So you can follow us. We're going to be sharing stuff on America Media's Instagram. So you, it's at America Media. And then we'll also be posting to our Twitter account too, which is at Jesuitical Show. So follow along. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And I guess this time we're talking about where we hope to find God when we're in Italy. Last week we talked about, you know, how to how to prepare for a pilgrimage or retreat or any just new season in life. So this week we thought we might, you know, think about what what we're looking forward to, the the graces that we're hoping to have in in Italy. So any anything come to mind for you, Zach? Yeah, Rome for me is in particular like a, a place of like deep personal and spiritual importance. I, you know, first I got engaged there, so that is one. It obviously, is a beautiful with a ton of meaning. Um, but also, when I was in college, I kind of had like a I don't know like a mini crisis of faith in Rome. It, I, I, when I went, I was kind of expecting to be in like the center of Catholicism, and it was just going to be so awesome that I was going to be like the world's best Catholic. And then when I got there, I really became pretty disillusioned with a lot of stuff. You know, it felt like things were more museums than churches, which just really shocked me. Um, and as I, you know, further ingrained myself in the professional structures of the Catholic Church, you know, I, I'm hoping to go with a renewed sense of of mission and relationship to, you know, our sort of our, our spiritual home in Rome. So hoping to get to Peter's tomb and just be like, what's going on? Um, how, how, how are we doing? Uh, what what do you want me to do for the for the church? Nice. How about you? What's are, are, is there a place that you're particularly looking forward to? Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to go to Assisi. I, I've never been, and anyone I tell that that we're going there and has been just like gushes about the natural beauty of the place. You know, when I, when I had to. Uh, pick my communion saint. I, I said St. Francis. It's like, I liked animals and he likes animals. Um, but I think there was something deeper there. I've I've always um 
I think I've always naturally found God in nature and kind of like suppress, like didn't want to acknowledge that because it didn't feel like properly Catholic. And so I kind of uh, suppressed that, that natural inclination. So I'm, I'm hoping in Assisi, um, you know, since so many people have, you know, told me about their spiritual experiences in the natural beauty of the area just to you know let myself be open to that without feeling like i need to justify finding god there nice i, I think uh, you've got a morning walk on your <laughs> yeah. itinerary right mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> awesome well i'm very excited to get there um i think cc will deliver yeah that's my prediction all right i will get us out of here so we can get ready to go to Rome. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gums with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshirt studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.